Welcome to Stumptown Soundcheck, our featured podcast today on our podcast co-op. Jamie Dunphy, your host, will guide you through the pulse of Portland's music scene, revealing its rich tapestry and exploring its significant cultural, economic, and societal implications. Whether you're a passionate fan of music, seeking to delve deeper into Portland's vibrant music scene, or a policymaker aiming to better understand the intersection of music and community dynamics, or simply someone who is curious about how music impacts our lives in more ways than we realize. This podcast has something for you. Welcome once again to Stumptown Soundcheck, and here's your host. Welcome back to Stumptown Soundcheck, our monthly conversation about the vital intersection of music and public policy. I'm your guest host, Chrissy Wood. A little bit about me, I'm a singer-songwriter for Ren the Band. I was also an organizer with Rose City Justice, which is a Black-led, community-born platform that mobilizes the public towards racial justice reform. In addition to my day job, I've had a foot in both Portland Music's public and policy work for a long time. I've been friends with Jamie for over a decade. When he asked me to step in and host this month, I was thrilled to accept. For Black History Month, let's have a conversation about the state of Portland's Black music community. Portland has earned a reputation as being hostile towards Black and Brown musicians, promoters, music fans, and music. To an outside observer, it might even be hard to identify Portland's Black music community. Not for lack of talent, drive, or people, Portland is overflowing with talented musicians, singers, rappers, producers, DJs, and entertainers. There's a reason no Black-owned music venue has lasted longer than 18 months in Portland in the last two decades. On past episodes of Stumptown Soundcheck, we've discussed how there are systemic problems, like Portland's noise code, which gives subjective power to police to decide if something is too loud, even when it is within the bounds of a noise permit which is frankly, Marenas. What happened in Portland to get us to this point? What's being done to fix these historic and ongoing wrongs? And what could our elected officials do to uplift the Black music community? My guests today embody the past of Black Portland music community, and they are actively creating its future. Calvin Walker is the co-founder of Albina Music Trust, which is preserving the history of Albina District's music community including Albina Community Archive, which features over 150 collections of photographs, audio recordings, videos, and printed material from Northeast Portland's once thriving funk and jazz scene. Kate Alvin. So a little bit about the Oregon Music Trust, but first, let's talk about why we may have some fragments of racism still lingering. You know, Oregon was the only state to ban Black individuals from ending its borders when they joined the union in 1859, and it did not ratify the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment, until 1973. So the effects of over a century of institutionalized racism remain today with the implicit bias, disproportionate involvement in the justice system, and the lack of equitable access to educational and economic opportunities. So that's the setup for the Albina Music Trust. My partner and I, uh, Bobby Smith, we met. Uh, he was doing interviews on Portland soul music, and he was from a rural area or a small town in Oregon and was one of the founders of X-Ray Music as well. 
And so he had a Friday night show and that was a lot of funk and soul music. And I came in and because I had grown up here and been a part of the music scene, both in inner Northeast and North Portland, but also just a musician who made his way downtown. And uh, in fact, I was one of the, there are memory of myself in a band called The Gangsters, which was the first release for the Albon Music Trust, actually played Vortex, which was Oregon's probably primary original rock festival back in 1970. And it was put on by uh, Governor Tom McCall to dissuade the hippies and yippies from confronting the American Legion, which was having their national convention in the streets of downtown Portland. So they arranged Vortex, and uh, we went out in our flatbed truck and were told initially that we wouldn't be able to play, but then they did let us play. The individual who did a sort of a chronological account of that period of time had no idea there was an all-black band that played at Vortex, uh, so obviously he didn't do his homework. <laughs> so we launched the Albina Music Trust on February 3rd at the Oregon Historical Society. Anybody can go to Albina Music Trust and click on anything or just type in a name and you will see the discography and the chronological history of that musician or that musical group. So that's what we did. It was a labor of love. So people ask, how did we fund the project? by every small grant we could possibly get our hands on, right? And of course, when you're doing things like this, uh, you need a 501c3 to solidify the grant. And we were lucky enough to work with the World Arts Foundation, Mr. Ken Berry, and he allowed us to do that, so we were able to accept these grants and continue to work. And then Bobby put together a great crew of people who digitized all this information. We got it in every form, from cassette tapes to quarter-inch tapes. And actually, we actually show how where we got the music from on the website. So when you look at a piece of music, you see how what we digitized to get it to the state that it's in today. Lovely. Ah, thank you so much for that introduction. I love it. Our next guest today is going to be DJ OG1. He is the official DJ of Portland Trailblazers. He's a music producer who has worked with countless famous and talented musicians across the country. He's also an elected governor board member of the Pacific Northwest chapter of the Recording Academy, public speaker, and leadership development coach through his organization, Leadertainment. Hey, DJ OG1. Hello. I'm so stoked to be spending this afternoon with you both and uh, have these questions answered about what's going on with the Black music community here in Portland. How have you seen the Black music scene change in the city over the years? Well, of course, there's layers to that answer right there. From an artist standpoint, I have seen just such a growth, uh, particularly amongst young creators, that there's a, a, a huge growth in talent in various uh, genres of music, particularly people of color in Portland. Unfortunately, it just remains to be the talent because the infrastructures are not set up there for them to, one, be able to display that talent in a way that allows them space to be able to create funding for themselves or make money off of their craft, nor is the infrastructure set up in terms of marketing 
And that really comes down to investment. What is the investment in particularly black music in Portland, as opposed to just the token opportunities? Um, you know, and no disrespect to some of the legendary um, events that go on in Portland, like the Blues Fest and things like that. But where is the black festival that's being ordered and, and funded to the level that you see the Blues Festival being funded? Where are the black venues where, you know, black creatives and artists not only can display their talent, but the infrastructure where they can be taught how to sustain their careers. And that that is what's hugely missing in this community. But again, the growth in talent is growing. That makes sense. So you're saying that what you think the black music community needs to thrive is infrastructure and investment. Absolutely. Friend Hope. Well, I think it's, again, it's in one of those layers. I think yeah. uh, as a black community, one, we need to spend our money on black events. If we want our, our artists and creatives to grow, guess what? You have to spend money. And, and of course, we're talking about the assumption that talent is actually good. <laughs> and there's a lot of good talent. There's a lot of good, great talent and a lot of great shows that are, are curated by people of color here. It's just unfortunately that because it's not marketed or people don't have the type of capital to market it as bigger promotional companies in the city, it gets overlooked or people are just lost. Like, uh, I had no idea that was going on and that event was going on. So there's the community part of it. But then there's the city and city of Portland. There's a lot of money that flows through the city of Portland that supports a lot of things. Unfortunately, people of color in terms of creative are at the bottom of that. And we have to move from just throwing token dollars at something just to appease an issue that, that comes up every now and then, but then it's not sustainable. When the hot topic is supporting black creatives, then, oh, we go throw some money at it, but that's just only sustainable for the moment. But in terms of long term, it's not. And so that has to become a priority just as much as these other events and, and curated events from people that don't look like us. Yeah. yeah. You know, OG brings up a great point. And one of those things, and he was mentioning community, but over the last 20 years, they've destroyed our community. What was the traditional African-American black community has all but been, you know, destroyed and True. largely due to gentrification, right? We've had five to six, 700,000 people move here, and some of them thought that community was just convenient for them, right? It's near the motor center, it's near the freeways, and a lot of those old homes that were, of course, inherited during the 40s, 50s, 60s. When that new generation of people, those transplants moved in, and those property rates went up, mm -hmm. a lot of the black community couldn't afford to live in that community anymore. So we're spread out from Happy Valley to Tigard. We're everywhere. Salem. And that's something to think about when you think of how do we wield our collective power when we're not in one centralized location. Our feelings are, our empathies, our compassions, all of those things are still intact, but we're everywhere, right? And so we, we don't see the impact of how our dollar is spent and 
how we collectively vote. And you think about things like the census, right? When the census is taken, when are they going to see about the African-American community since there really isn't one? It's been dissipating. So we're missing that community hub that we used to have. There's not one place where we can all gather right. and see the posters and the signage and right. advertise to ourselves. Right. And that's different these days because social media and so forth. Sure. Uh, and OG hit it so right. When there's a pittance to be thrown out or when there's an advantage to exposing what we do, whether it's somebody locally or somebody who comes through, you look at present jazz festival, I'll mention it by name, that's happening in the city right now through March, a lot of those artists are black artists, right? And they're drawing multi-racial crowds. So there's something to be said for what we do as a people, the music that we create. But unfortunately, it always takes someone who, who is going to exploit us to get it out there. Yeah, yeah. And that's the part that I was saying. We're in a position that we're, as a collective community of creators, we're hoping someone invites us to the table. Right. Mm -hmm. As opposed to we have an infrastructure that we can control the narrative and help nurture and create a pipeline, not only for the veterans that are creatives right now, but mm -hmm. also for our young people that, you know, right now, do they look to in terms of being able to see, oh, this is what it looks like to curate my craft and to develop my craft. I can go places to see this happening. Exactly. And that infrastructure is not built right now. Yeah. And OG, he brings up such an important point because in my life at 12 years old, I was able to go to a black nightclub and see professional musicians. They would let us in and let us play because we were kids, right? playing jazz music and actually having a place to have a creative outlet. And there were clubs all over that community, right? <laughs> and the majority population paid no attention to it. So in some ways, being accepted, that integration sort of destroyed our community. It, it's an irony that that happened because everybody was striving to get out of, you know, that situation, be able to play for the majority of population, to play in bigger places, to big in bigger venues. Yeah. In the process of that, we destroyed our community, right? Yeah. We took the best of us and they scattered to the east, west, north, and south. And then 20, 30 years later, gentrification happens and destroyed everything we could build. One of the important things is the dollar itself, right? When we had that black community, you went to the grocery store, that dollar from that black hand went into another black hand. He went to the cleaners, to the barbershop, to the nightclub, to the Elks Lodge, and all of that money stayed within the confines of the community. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, what they call accessibility happened, and those dollars fled. Yeah. That reminds me of when schools were integrated, all the black teachers lost their jobs, right? Because we weren't shipping white people back over to the black school. So it's a similar. There you go. Similar, and when we forget to recognize the downsides of progress or the other side of something that is maybe designed for good, but it also has some significant, some significant negatives. I'm wondering, DJ, you were saying that we're not being invited to have a seat at the table. And I'm wondering, between the pair of you, do you think it's better to build our own table or to find a way to demand a seat at the existing table? No, what I was saying is that we have to 
uh, the way it's set up right now, we're in a position where we're hoping that we get invited to the table because we don't have a black infrastructure that we control the narrative of. So it puts us in a position that we have to hope that some of the other platforms invite us to, you know, be able to display our talents and our creativity. And I go to the point again of saying that there needs to be an investment in the black community. Uh, if we're specifically talking about music, but we, of course we know generally, but particularly in terms of music, we need to have that investment there where we have the control of the narrative. And I think it's not only just a dependence upon the city itself, but I think, again, there's some education that needs to go on along in our own community in terms of reestablishing and reigniting our understanding of how much power we do wield in the city, whether it's our, our voice in terms of voting, whether it's through how we spend our, our dollars, all of those things collectively is, is some of the issues that have to be addressed simultaneously. OG is so right. And I think more than likely it's going to take somebody with the wherewithal and the vision to look past and it could be a basketball player or a business person or somebody who wants to make that investment in building something and having, it, it could start as simply as with a venue that actually catered to our music, our lifestyle, and be presented in a way that the majority population, because we have to have the support of everybody. Unfortunately, there are a lot of things that have to go on in a venue. There's licensing and there's like you stated before, the the noise ordinances and, and being sanctioned, if you will, so that those old traditional stops didn't happen and people can progress and grow their venue and their business. What are ways that individuals can actively support the Black music community without tokenizing it? I, I think they do. I mean, we've had we've had Black music go on its way from the U crew to Pleasure to whatever the case may be, it's the consistency that's in jeopardy. Something that you can see every night. If I knew OG was going to be at the Boom Room Room every Tuesday night, I'm going to be at the Boom Room Room every Tuesday night. So a lot of it is just the consistency. If he's there, you know, one place, one week, and a year later he's at another place, that makes it hard to build that solid crowd or, or group that's going to come and support what you do. And I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier as well, the investment it, with people very intentionally understanding that they have to be intentional. At the end of the day, we vote with our dollars. We place value on things that we perceive have value. No one has to tell me, you know, you have people that are standing in line a day or two before to get a pair of shoes. <laughs> yeah. And spend hundreds of dollars and sometimes thousands of dollars for a pair of shoes. Right. Now, it doesn't matter how that shoe was made, how much it cost for a manufacturer to make that shoe. The perceived value caused a reaction and people go spend their dollars. Here in Portland, and I say this because, you know, again, traveling around the country, sitting in, in meetings with music communities across the country as relates to the Recording Academy and hearing the discussions. And one of the consistent thing is that we don't make a big enough deal out of each other. 
And here in Portland specifically, when we go out, even artists, we have to be more intentional. I was just talking to uh, a, a musician earlier, and I was saying that we have to be intentional in terms of how we market each other. And when I mean marketing, I'm talking about how we speak on each other. We have to make a big deal out of each other. So that's one, the power of the voice. And then we have to follow it up with our dollars, right? I mean, I'm considered a celebrity DJ, NBA DJ. I travel and I'm on big stages. But guess what? Even with my status, I'll go and play at Alberta Street Pub when they can't necessarily afford me. But I go there to add value to that place because of being intentional and making a big deal. If OG1 can go and play here, other people can go and play there. You see, I mean, other people can come spend their money. And it doesn't matter what my pay is, but if I really say that I support Black establishments, I have to put my money and my time where my mouth is. Yeah. And OG brings up such a good point, especially that Alberta corridor is full of the possibilities, right? You have Alberta Abbey, the street pub, you have the Alberta House in that district as well, on top of the fact that the Black United Front is right down the street. Absolutely. So, you know, the activity and the energy is there is how can we contain it and consistently be presenting things that would draw a crowd, right? And as OG says, spending our dollars, investing our dollars in a corridor or in a club, uh, it has to start somewhere. And uh, that would be a, a great place to start just simply because there are other venues. And that's where it is so important where the allyship comes in. Uh -huh. In terms of people are, that are not of color, in terms of there are a lot of people that want to support and do actually come and support some of those venues. But again, I think there's that educational piece that goes along with it in terms of how even they use their voice in terms of making a big deal out of our collective community here. So I think it's that piece, but that's where that comes in. It's so important where people that do want to support, and it's not about tokenizing anything. It's really that we have great talent here. We have absolute, we have talent here that have been on stages with the likes of Stevie Wonder, Prince, and, 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 yeah. The list goes on, and they're right here playing the very limited venues that we have access to, but they don't get the support as much as someone who has a more perceived, that might be less talented, but they have a bigger perceived value. You know, OG, I totally agree. Imagine, oh, we need somebody with the vision to take that chance, that initial chance of presenting consistently over a period of time this music and he's exactly right not a one-off not anything that's just a token but something that's going to be consistent over a period of time and i think that they would see the result that they would want which is they want to make money and they unfortunately there comes another level of uh, exploitation but at least they would see that there's a possibility of this great music thriving. Uh, and again, whether it's a venue or a quarter, he's exactly right. There's some world-class talent here and has been for a long, long time. 
and it would be nice that they were given the opportunity to to thrive. I love that. I love all of that. And it comes together for me in a in a imagined like giant street foyer celebrating the black community. Like maybe there's a parade on this corridor for Juneteenth or something, and it and it is really celebrating the the life and music of a black body. And you also are talking about allyship. OG and I love that. I love how you mentioned, like you didn't say specifically, but the need for hype folks and really celebrating and uplifting each other. And that's I think that's a way where, you know, your average person might not have the dollars to spend to go out to these venues and, and spend the money on the drinks and the tickets and all that, but it is still valuable for them to post, to repost, to share and to celebrate and be grateful and show gratitude towards the creators and help elevate their voices, you know? So what kind of policies do you think could exist to support and protect infrastructure that would be necessary to grow the community? Well, well I mean, and that's, a loaded, that's a loaded question. <laughs> that's, a loaded question. that's a loaded question and it has layers to it. So yeah. uh, I can just say being on the Portland scene since, what, 93, that I've been on the music scene and I've watched when there was, uh, if I particularly point out hip hop in Portland with, you know, there were, you know, black run nightclubs where artists can perform. And I've watched that go from seven or eight different spots to none and seeing the systematic shutting down of those venues because there are certain policies set in that allowed agencies to run rogue without any accountability. So I think some of the work now that Music Portland is doing in terms of, uh, and the Music Policy Council is doing in terms of addressing codes that are particularly leaning heavy on minorities who are trying to run establishments, but they're having to jump through a lot of red tape and hoops that people that don't look like them have to. And so I think addressing some of those policies that, you know, that's one level so people can actually run sustainable businesses and feel like they're getting the support of the city in terms of how their structure is. And again, some of that goes back to what Brother Calvin was talking about in terms of systemic stuff that has been going, that happened years ago that I've been learning about. And I'm like, oh, so that's why that's still, we still are, you know, have some of the residue of that. I didn't know that was happening here. But it makes total sense from someone who's come from another city here and wonder why. Why is this happening here? So we have to address that, continue to expose that. But again, I think it's a lot more simpler than people make it. And they, they turn it into political things where it's simply as simple as this. Is it valuable? If it's valuable and it adds value to the city. Is it worth investing in? And if it is, stop playing the political game and put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> Play. Period. And sometimes it's as simple as, let's say, okay, so a brother has a club on this street at this time. He opens up from these hours to these hours. And somewhere down the street, you never see a cop car. But at this particular place where the brother is, there's always a cop. Right. Just going by, driving by, doing a little subtle intimidation, looking for something to disrupt. 
as opposed you could have that the same volume level, the same amount of people in the venue, but it's across town and nobody pays attention to it or they leave them alone and allow them to prosper. So a lot of it is that. Then you also have a liquor commission to deal with, right? And DUIs and all of these has happened and they've happened in the last 30 or 40 years and they didn't exist before. The DUIs, quite crazy enough, you have a drink, you go out, you get stopped. Not only does it affect you on the immediacy of it, but it also informs your insurance company and your insurance rates go up. So sometimes the system is just, uh, it plays against us. So we, we need, OG is so right, we need someone who wields a certain level of power to allow these venues to grow or to change what has systemically been damning for us into something that's positive. Absolutely. I love that. I wonder, DJ, was you one you've mentioned investment a bunch of times and Calvin, you were saying that you get a lot of your money for the Albion Music Trust from grants. I'm wondering if you have specific grants that have been really useful to you or a specific source of money that's come pretty consistently or if it's if you're scrapping together every year and that's exactly what we're doing there's rack you know the regional arts mm-hmm. and culture council you're only going to get so much from them and they've been very gracious to us and then the level of the grants are the local and regional grants are at a certain thing and then you have to play another game for the national grant, the NEA grants and that type of stuff. You usually would have to have a board and the board would have to show lineage of consistency. So there's a lot of hoops that you have to jump through to survive in that way. I don't know if anybody knows, but we put out 10 albums. We have merchandise and that type of stuff. We can only afford to do it on the immediate. So we put out the albums. If we make 100 and we sell them out, it's going to be a while before we make another hundred because those dollars are going to go into promoting and pushing out something else. <laughs> and we've had to not do things. We wanted to do another Al- Albina Soul Review this year. It just the funding became what it was. We were able to do the launch. And then we had exhausted a lot of what our resources were. So we have to rebuild every time. And thank God Bobby and the crew that we have working on this and everything from the infrastructure of the site to all the work that they put in. When you look at it, you realize this took thousands and thousands of hours to put this together. It wasn't done overnight, and it wasn't done in a haphazard way. It was done very meticulously and with attention to detail. Let's face it, we were giving the trust of the individuals who gave us this material, and even though it may have been sitting at the bottom of a, of a drawer in somebody's garage, it would steal the hopes and dreams and aspirations that they were handing us. Mm. Regardless of whether or not they had been abandoned or not, there was always probably a little prayer in everyone's head that this would see a, a bigger light of day, if you will. And so that's what we were able to do. And I think we were, we sort of got some universal blessings because we were able to do this and not be confronted with any issues, but able over eight, nine year period to put together all these materials and and have people put the faith and trust in us that we weren't going to exploit them, which we would never do, and we have not. But we're not trying to 
put out the greatest hits of Portland in Europe and make <laughs> make a million bucks. And just to add on to uh, what Brother Calvin said, it just proved the point again when I talk about investment. If we perceive the value, I mean, they're doing great work over there. But as he said, oftentimes they're having to scrabble, you know, and try to see how they can pinch pennies to, to raise money for something that supports our music ecosystem. But if we look at, again, if I just use this as an example, I say this when I'm in meetings with people or decision makers and I talk about how we have to rebrand how we, the criteria and how we decide we give money out. The reality is that we are spending amount about 60 grand a year to house one inmate, 60 grand. Do the math on that. If we took half of the salary that it takes to house an inmate on the back end of something, what if we invested that on the front end for something like Albana Trust and said we're going to invest on the front end for something that's positive that has value and adds value to the city? Now, I just use that as, as an example when I say there's money there, it's how we are using it and how we are spending it. It's taxpayers' money. You see what I mean? So the money is going there, but how is it being allocated for the stuff that on the surface we say things, but when it comes down to spending our money, it doesn't always line up with the values that we speak about. And money's an important issue. You know what, what Reverend Ike used to say, LG? He said, I used to be black, but now I'm green. <laughs> You're <laughs> right. right. Basically, and it's not about getting rich. Some people just want to do this so that you can show this long history. You know, when people are left to their own devices, they're left to their own devices in their own communities, it's amazing the creativity that comes out mm -hmm. of it, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's what these black musicians, entrepreneurs and producers and performers, that's what they did. They didn't really have access to anything else. So the creativity came in those, those small workshops and those places where they could get their work done. You know, the studios that were willing to let them record at a level that they were able to afford. And that's how you got everybody from the U crew to a hundred others, Mike Crenshaw, a number of people because they were giving a little bit of access and they took that little bit of access and turned them into something golden. True. And we have to do something to break the cycle of our creatives that are, are amazing here in Portland. They end up saying that they have to leave. They have to leave Portland because yes. we haven't built the infrastructure for them to be able to, to sustain a career and still live here. I think about Amine. Amine is from Portland. He goes around. He has, you know, on his stage props is replicas of Alberta on his stage show. But he lives in L.A. now. And he's a multi-platinum artist that could have stayed here, but we don't have the infrastructure that to help a, a artist like him sustain where he can stay, feel like, okay, I can live here and go do business outside of Portland, but oh I can stay here because I'm valued here in Portland. Because that's the main thing. I talk to producers that are on major albums with everybody that's produced from Beyonce and on that have come out of Portland. 
that are feeling like I got to leave here because I'm not really valued here. I don't think it needs to be this huge. We just, we need a lab, right? We need that 500 seat venue that six to seven nights a week presents the music that we love and the music that others would love too, given an opportunity and a consistency of presenting it, right? The inadequacies are that we don't get the opportunity enough. It's only when someone finds an advantage for their own pockets do we get an opportunity to shine. Yeah. And the other part as well is, again, we have, you know, major promotional companies that come here in our region and they monopolize the venues, but yet they don't support local artists. A lot of them don't allow local artists and musicians to open up for the major artists. So if they're monopolizing the venues, then what happens to our local scene? And that's all genres going across the board. Yeah, it's very true. How can somebody who's looking to go to a show know the difference? Like know if there's going to be local people there for to open for a big show? Like how do they know how to spend their money wisely? You use the search the web bar. And <laughs> <laughs> you put their name in there and you click it. They just got to do the work. Like everybody's got to do the work. Yeah. And sometimes you got to go. Just yeah. got to go. Find out the venues that are playing live, having live bands play, and just go check it out. A lot of people have come to venues that I've played at that have live bands and different performers, and they walk away. Wow, I, did, I had no idea. But they were just exactly. coming to grab a drink and got surprised that, oh, wow, this is some great talent here. So sometimes, again, you just go. You, they just have to go. And then tweet about it. Yeah, and then talk about it. Yeah, and go back and support it again. Yep. Bring a few friends. Bring 10 friends. Meet them there. Paint a picture for me of what Portland would look like with a thriving Black music community. Like, what's it look like? For me personally, it's just a part of the overall fabric of the city. You can have a good foot. You can have a wherever else. But there's this one club called... Funky's Place, that's mainly a Black-owned and operated venue with our culture represented as well. From the food they serve to the drinks they serve, every single part of it, a part of the Black experience. From what people wear to the club and everything else. So they really get the whole cultural experience of who and what we are. It's a joyful thing. It's rich with all, the caveats are endless. We are pretty cool people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think to add to that, I could, I totally 100% agree with uh, Calvin. And I would add to that in setting a pipeline structure where you have the younger generation that are coming up. One, you put music back into the schools particularly black schools. You put music back into the schools so you create a pipeline to for them to be able to grow in terms of their talent, but also you have the infrastructure so once they decide how they want to go to the next level, those things are set in place already. A culture is already set in place where they don't have to, again, leave from, from Portland or Oregon to feel like, okay, there's nothing here that's going to nurture my talent with people that look like me. So I think it's the combination of, of, of both of those. 
Awesome. What's next for the Albina Music Trust, Calvin? Well, the Albina Music Trust, of course, we call it a living trust. So we'll continue to accept if people find things in their basement or in their attic or in the, in the truck of their, of their Impala. We will continue to put it onto the trust. And hopefully people, I mean, truthfully, anybody who looks at it, they would say that it's well worthy of national attention. Because there's very, very few cities, even major cities, where you've taken such a long period of music. You know, you're talking about 50, 60 years of music productivity on that website. And so we just will continue to try to find ways to uh, grow our funding outside of having it be sponsored by Hennessy or a cool whatever, right? <laughs> so there's still integrity. And a certain intellectual plateau involved with it and just keep trying to do the things that we've always done. And I, I look forward to what we'll accomplish in the coming years and Bobby and the crew. The main thing, and I think OG will, would appreciate this too, when you develop a crew, and in this case, our crew was working on that website, you want to keep those people together because you... You develop a kindredship and a respect for each other that doesn't have anything to do with our egos or who we are individually. It's a collective ideology and collective thought. And that's what you want from an association with other human beings is to, to be have everybody on the same plane and working toward something good that doesn't have anything to do with individual accomplishment but has more to do with the good of the whole. Absolutely. And that's what we try to do with the Albina Music Trust. Make it accessible to people. You don't have to pay for it. You can just go to the site and listen to it for literally for hours. It's beautiful. I forgot to ask you earlier, you said you put out albums, and I'm wondering what's on them. Is it new or old? Well, it's music from the era that it was recorded. The majority of them are from the 70s. Mm -hmm. And it's everything from a lot of the popular horn bands, from the gangsters to Transport to Slickophonic, the groups that were playing in the area at the time. But the most recent one was something put out by Ken Berry, who was formerly the secretary treasurer of the World Arts Foundation. And it's called Time Sound. And it was is over a 20-year period where he and their memory had put, it started out as a choir, then it was a gospel choir, then it was music and the choir and individual performances. And this is over a long, long period of time. And many, many incredible musicians came out of that. And their learning, the learning ground for them was with Thera and Ken, right? So that album just came out. Imagine, can you imagine like you're 60 years old, right? And a part of your youth was that you sang in the Time Sound band, right? In the Time Sound group. And you never thought anything would come out of it, right? And then literally 50 or 60 years later, this album comes out with all these wonderful voices, these wonderful performances. That's kind of touched the heart, right? And really make the people feel good that were even a small part of that. They're going, man, that album came out. I was on that record. I was only 16 years old. Mm -hmm. So there's something to be, it's jubilation is what it is, truthfully. Ken Berry had 50 or 60 years of this material in his basement. 
And you can imagine, it's just like, you know, you're in college and you take all your books with you or your albums. And I oh, I know OG can appreciate this. Oh, yeah, well, man. Carrying those albums, right? I carried albums for 40 years. Right? Crates and crates of albums, because that's what we did. We bought records back in those days, right? Mm -hmm. I think oh, you could get a, a record for $1.25, right? Whether it was the Ohio Players or, Miss you know. <laughs> and digitizing music sort of changed that, but that was our lives, right? So that's what we did. And so it's also nice to see that, that albums and that are coming back and people can find appreciation for the sound that you find in the oh, lines of the groups. OG, what's next for you? Ooh, well, just doing the work. A lot of advocacy work that I'm doing with the Recording Academy for the Pacific Northwest, as well as continue the work that I'm doing with Music Portland and the Music Policy Council. Of course, DJing all all over the place, <laughs> representing the Rose City, producing some projects that'll be coming out soon. And uh, just again, just pouring into uh, a lot of the younger generation. My company, Leadertainment, again, I'm really leaning heavy on the personal and, and professional development of artists because they have talent, but I want to make sure that their character brands are aligning with their talents so they can sustain longer careers. Awesome. Are there any Portland music talent musicians that you would recommend? Oh, man, all of them. <laughs> I mean, there's so many. I mean, where do you want to start? I mean, again, there's so much talent. I I, I wouldn't want to disrespect anybody by missing some people's names, but I mean, in yeah. all genres, there are incredible, talented artists from hip hop to R&B to soul to jazz to reggaeton. I mean, all kinds of stuff. Afrobeats. I mean, there's a number of talent that are out there. People just have to get to these venues and, and yeah. experience it themselves. I love that. Looks like we've reached the end of our conversation today. I want to thank you, Calvin Walker and DJ OG1 for joining me this afternoon. And a special thank you to Veronica Bassesti and the team at Portland Radio Project for making this show sound so good every month. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Chrissy. Yeah. I, I want to say thank you, OG. And and soon, sooner or later, one day we'll hook up. So, yeah. Yes, this is a special thing for brothers, right? Yes. We acknowledge each other. And so I Absolutely. feel it's really a blessing to be uh, to share time with this brother, even though we couldn't see each other. We were just hearing our voices. It was mm -hmm. just a wonderful, wonderful time and, and an honor for me to spend with this wonderful brother today. Likewise, my brother. Likewise. And thank you, Chrissy. Yeah, no problem. Thank you, Chrissy. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for joining us this afternoon for our conversation about music. And we'll talk to y'all next month on Stumptown Soundcheck. I've been your host, Chrissy Wood. Jamie Dunphy will be back next month. Stay safe out there. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Stumptown Soundcheck on PRP's podcast co-op. We hope you've enjoyed our informative discussion on Portland's music scene and its significance in our society and economy. Stumptown Soundcheck is a production of Portland Radio Project in collaboration with Music Portland. Episodes air the fourth Sunday of every month. Until next time, stay connected to PRP and keep advocating for our vibrant music community.